And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. It is a great honor once again to welcome back to our show, legendary economic forecaster, and I would call him a scholar and expert on human nature, Martin Armstrong. You can learn more about Martin by going to his website at armstrongeconomics.com. Again, as I've said several times before, Martin's site is the first thing I read in the morning because I want to get uh, the most purest form of information. Martin, welcome back to our show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And happy new year. Hopefully it'll be happier than previous years to go. <laughs> I, I noticed uh, some of your recent blogs is that you've you've always been focusing a lot on 2032. And I noticed... I think it must have been the last couple of weeks that you're talking about the fall of the U.S. in 2020 and 2044. Has there been any kind of changes that have been happening right now that would appear to see the U.S. Uh, reaching an endpoint farther out? Or is that just another part of the, uh, the thing that's going to work with 2032, where we're going to see it's a lot just of chaos? part of it. I mean, uh, effectively, what you see, uh, even in Brazil and Peru, uh, you see a lot of people very, you know, rioting and upset and things of this nature. And the, the problem with politics is that we have uh, really, I guess, uh, diverted from what is supposed to be. I mean, these people are, are supposed to represent everybody and in the country. You know, and it's like one side gets in, now it's ours turn to, to, you know, land blast the other side. You know, it, it's just absolutely, you know, absurd. And, and the problem with that type of, of political system, I mean, this is why republics always fail. Um, once you get into that sort of um, me against them sort of thing, uh, you defeat the very purpose of civilization. I mean, civilization is when everybody comes together and it's beneficial. Um, you know, I don't care what religion you have or who you voted for. That's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we all get along. That's that's the way it should be. When you start dividing people and making this group against that group. And I mean, this is exactly what uh, Hitler did. And. The, the net result of it is, is that everybody is against everybody else. So you're not paying attention to this, to the, to the government. I mean, you know, the, the Romans were famous for saying, give them, you know, uh, free food and circuses and they leave us alone, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's very true. Uh, and that's really the decline and fall of the United States. Republics are always the worst form of government mainly because these people don't really represent us. It's easy to get, um, you know, to bribe them. Uh, and that's why I've, I've always said that, you know, the, the, the main thing we really needed to clean things up is, is basically term limits. Uh, it should be just one time in and out. That was it. Then you have a, a government of the people and by the people. This way, you do not. Uh, and that's probably one of the things that made Trump so popular to get elected to begin with. Um, and, uh, you know, draining the swamp and all that. Uh, but, you know, what he was a little naive about was the fact that the swamp is both sides. You know, it's uh, the whole place is a swamp. You know, it's not a cesspool, really. Uh, but, so we have to understand that. And, and people don't grasp this yet. I mean, I can run for 
president or Congress or whatever and say whatever you want to hear. Oh, I'm for women's rights. I want to save the whales and vote for me and I'll do this. Then you get to Congress and what happens? Um, You can't vote for any of that stuff. You're told how to vote, what to vote and when. And so if you look at these these votes in Congress, you'll see they're always down party line. So it, it politics is, you know, basically become, like I said, you, I can run for office, promise anything you want to hear to get in. And then I get there and then I have no say. You know, the party tells me what I'm supposed to vote for or, you know, and when. And that's what's the problem with a republic. I just wonder how much longer, I appreciate your answer, and I wonder how much longer it is going to sustain because you've talked in the past about the U.S. heading towards a civil conflict or a breakup. But I find it really interesting that despite the fact that there uh, are supposedly these two ideologies, uh, Republicans and Democrats, they seem to all coalesce and come together when it comes to giving money to Ukraine and to passing every kind of military budget and continuing all these surveillance programs. So I, I was wondering if these two political parties were fundamentally opposed to each other, why did they seem to come together and be able to be so agreeable on some of these things that have real term implications for the entire country, such as giving Ukraine an infinite amount of money? I just don't understand why this continues to happen and when we're actually going to see these two ideologies kind of split and divide when we actually can live into a place and move into a state that'll be fundamentally different from somewhere else. Because I don't want to live in certain states that do not uh, honor people's freedom, that do not honor people's economic freedom. And I don't know when we're going to finally get to that point where we just see that split. Well, it's it's developing. I mean, uh, I moved to Florida um, about six years ago, and the traffic has more than doubled. Um, I went um, over to meet DeSantis to see, you know, what he was really like, etc. But and he pointed out when he first ran, um, there were only fifty thousand more Republicans in the state than Democrats. Uh, today, there's almost four hundred thousand more registered Republicans than Democrats. So it the the influx of people from everywhere else, particularly up north, is just, it, it's astonishing. Um, houses down here, uh, you know, I've talked to realtors, basically the high-end market and uh, at like a million dollars and up, people are just paying cash. Uh, so they're, they're like simply no. just taking money out of the bank and they don't want it in the banking system. <laughs> they're just one, you know, they're parking it in, in real estate or whatever. Uh, but, you know, people would talk about, oh, mortgage rates are going up. You know, it doesn't seem to stop them down here because um, they're, they're fleeing Chicago and New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. I mean, um, I mean, New York has an eight and a half percent sales tax. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, might as well make it 10, you know, let's just go all the way. I mean, California has a 13.5% income tax. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, Florida has no income tax. I mean, it's it's just a different, um, complete, I would say, philosophy or or culture here. Um, I had just, when I moved, I had just bought a brand new car up in, in New Jersey. I brought it down. I said, okay, fine. <clears throat> um, one, I hadn't had a, 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 an American driver's license in probably 25 years. I had an English one because uh, I used to live in, in England in 1985. I went for a, a, a driver's license and for $10, you know, that was it. And it was good for life. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is not bad. You know, so I always used my English driver's license. So when I moved to Florida, I ended up having to get a, a I figured I'll get an American driver's license uh, down here. And the woman said, you know, you don't have one. I said, well, from only like 25 years ago. And she said, oh, that's good enough. It's great. It's great. I mean, um, 
I had never had a, a speeding ticket or anything like that. <clears throat> and I was driving down um, the road and I really wasn't paying attention because there was nobody on the road. So it was like, you don't really, you're not keeping up with traffic or anything else. And I was, so I was, I was doing like 50 and a 35 and a cop pulls me over. I give him my license and he comes back to me. He says, you've never had a ticket. I said, no. And he said, well, I don't want to be the first one to give you one. I was like, what? Good for you. <laughs> I mean, in New Jersey, they would like, you know, oh, they... something's wrong. Call out the, you know, the yeah, troopers, but... yeah. investigate this guy. Everybody's had a ticket. It's just, um, it's just a different philosophy. Um, and even with the car, I mean, it was like, I said, okay, fine. We have to get it inspected. In New Jersey, you have to get the cars inspected all the time. And she says, oh, we don't do that down here. I said, all right, thank you very much. Welcome to Florida. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's just a different atmosphere. Uh, it, people are, are friendlier. They're, they're not as uptight. Whereas in New York, I think if you fall on the street, they'll step over you or kick you to say, get out of the way. You know? Absolutely. I'm not from New York and I can testify to that. And my yeah. family's from New Jersey and, you know, the amount of taxes. When you're talking about philosophies, I mean, I look at Florida because I really wanted to move there. I'm in North Carolina and North Carolina, I think it's OK, but I'm trying to get my wife trying to convince her to go to Florida. I just want to be in a place where more people love and respect freedom. If you're looking at Florida, do you find that that's going to be the free state? Are there other states that you think that could uh, be places or fundamentally stronger? Probably for Texas. Um, yeah. They seem to to um, rise up for that as, as much. Uh, and when the country splits, I think you're going to see it, it's historically, it's usually along the same lines as what it split before. So it would be like North versus South, but, you know, California wasn't part of the civil war. I think that will California, Oregon, uh, Washington, I think they'll basically split off into their own, you know, uh, wonderland out there. The Midwest will probably be more aligned with the South against the North, um, Northeast. Uh, it, it's, you, you're just at a point where it's just, it, it's impossible. I mean, what I pay in property taxes down here are still less than what I paid in New Jersey. And that was 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, my my uh, father was a lawyer and his and his old uh, partner, you know, I went to him for a will, et cetera. And he said to me, he says, you should move to Florida. I said, really? He says, yeah, because if you die here, you better tell your, your family to drag your body across the river before they tell anything. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just it's that, um, you know, you pay taxes all your life, then they want 40% of what you what's left after you die. I mean, um, they, you know, it's like people, you know, the, the culture was that you saved to take care of your kids or whatever. And then they're like, no, that's not fair. Because somebody else didn't save for their kids, so we're taking everybody's money. It's it's just a, a very cold attitude up there. Um, I mean, before I left uh, Marlton, New Jersey, which is probably one of the most notorious ticket cities in in uh, in the state. I mean, they went as far as as to driving the work. They blocked the road, and every car had you had to show your paperwork. Oh, if you didn't have anything, oh, go over there for the ticket. You know, uh, I mean, that's constitutionally illegal. Doesn't matter. I mean, you're going to, you know, who's going to defend you in court? It's going to cost you a half a million dollars to say this is unconstitutional. I mean, I've gotten tickets in New Jersey in a private parking lot, which is illegal. You know, uh, but you pay the $25 because... You don't want to go through the time and energy. Who's going to take the day off, go to, to court? Uh, they know this. And so they just exploit people unbelievable. Uh, um, my father had taken a, a local judgeship in New Jersey years ago in Cinnaminson, and he quit because the politicians said, look, we want you to give the maximum fine to everybody. And he says, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, they, these things of 
tickets and whatever. It's all money, you know, raising money for them. That's it. It's, yeah. it has nothing to do with safety or anything else. Um, it, it's just a, a way of extorting more money from the public. Yeah, and probably give it to Zelensky. So uh, he's getting more of it. <laughs> you know, one thing, um, you're talking about the U.S. splitting. I'm seeing right now in Oregon, and if you're probably observing as well, that you have more and more counties that are saying, you know, we're going to be part of greater Idaho. And apparently they're saying, well, it doesn't matter what the people say. You have to have permission from, you know, this, the senators to allow this to happen. And I, I don't, it's something fundamentally just doesn't sink well, where it's like, well, why do you need permission? Why can't you just leave? And then I thought about, when uh, the Berlin Wall fell and you have all these people out there that no longer recognize the authority or no longer had faith that those people could be suppressed any longer. So when these states fundamentally split, is it going to be one principle where everyone kind of adapts to? You have a hundredth monkey effect where people say, no, we no longer recognize your authority. And that is why we were able to do this. And we have a consensus of people that no longer recognize your authority to suppress us or to rule over us. If is that one fundamental principle that is uh, would be the common thread in all states that wish to succeed or wish to break off, or is it more or less that they have to people who still believe in the authority of the state will have to go through this process and have to you know beg and plead their their senators to say, well, look, can you please let us go? How do you foresee this thing happening? No, it, it's it really actually depends upon the police and the military. Uh, okay. If, if you look at Russia in 1991, Yeltsin stood on the tank. I mean, there was a coup against Gorbachev. And uh, he stood on the tank and, and pleaded with the military, do not fire on your own people. They didn't. And when they didn't, the coup collapsed. So it, it all turns on, on that issue. And the same thing in Ukraine back in 2014. Once the police no longer defended Yanukovych, that was it. It was over. Um, so you're going to see, you know, I think uh, these areas and the key will be uh, these politicians can say whatever they want. But if the po local police stop supporting them and and or military, depending upon where you're at, uh, then it collapses. That's how it goes. Um, but you, you, you see this throughout history. It's always that's the, that's the key. As long as the police are there and they're going to arrest you and shoot you and things of that nature, uh, then the government remains in place, as in Venezuela, for example. Um, it, it's you have to turn the military and or the police. And once that happens, the government falls. Okay. That's why I was one. I was surprised that Venezuela has continued to last as long as it's had, especially with our hyperinflation figured by now or a long time ago, you would have seen a fundamental shift. And when I look at some of these other places that have been suppressed throughout the world, like looking at Brazil right now, it seems that, um, these forces, these Marxist forces, they seem to always prevail despite the, the will of the people. I, what is the tipping point if, um, because if these people, uh, these Marxists or the people that want to suppress others are able to get paid, they're able to get taken care of and their livelihoods are taken care of, what is their incentive to stand with the people if they're going to be fundamentally taken care of? Because if they stand with the people and they do not prevail, then they're in the same lot as people. Apparently in Brazil, uh, that a lot of people are rounded up and put into a camp and they're, they're not being fed and a lot of these terrible things are happening to them. So I'm just wondering, what is the um, motivating factor for uh, these people in power, the military police to stand with the people and uh, take that risk and take the chance of prevailing as opposed to standing with them and you know not prevailing and being cast in the same lot at them and losing everything they have? Yeah, well, I think you're, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. If you look at North Korea, uh, they have the largest army. Why? Because if you join the army, then you get food first. Yeah. Um, if you didn't join the army, then you can starve. You know, you don't get well fed. Uh, so the army gets fed first. And that's why so many people joined it. <clears throat> so, um, I mean, that's a, a very important factor. But at some point, the whole thing ends up collapsing. In, in Venezuela, anybody that basically had any real talents or skills, they've left. Yeah. Um, 
I know people that are here in Florida that that became citizens, but their parents were still there. They got them out. Um, and because their pension funds, yes, the government continues to pay them their pension. But what would have supported them for a month, you know, won't even buy a cup of coffee. Um, so, you know, this is, you know, they keep the, the police well fed. Uh, and so they figure that they have to stay with this and go against the people. Otherwise, they starve. Um, that seems to be the real, you know, kicker here. Um, it, at some point, you know, you're going to have to look at um, <clears throat> the government from a fresh pair of eyes. But I think what we're we're seeing here is you just look at Peru and Brazil. I mean, this is what our computer has been forecasting. It's civil unrest on a global scale. The, um, the, the two main factors are this inflation, uh, where fine, it might cost me twice as much to fill up my car, but I survive. But you go to a third world country uh, and the price of, of fuel to them is so high they can't afford to eat. So you have civil unrest rising in many places uh, around the world for, for inflationary spirals. Uh, then you have, you know, this left versus right. Uh, and I can tell you our computer, I think, uh, accurately forecast that the Brazilian election was going to be rigged. And uh, <clears throat> look, the the. The WEF is the main one behind that, all right? You had the same thing happen in Italy. You had the same thing happen in Scotland. Uh, oh, the people sent in to, to count the votes in Scotland for their separation movement just happened to come from the EU. Um, they, you know, they found bags of, of votes just thrown in the river. Uh, it, it's just, this is the way it goes. Uh, elections from here on out, I seriously question if any election is ever going to be fair again. Um, you, you take the whole, you know, FTX thing. It was just one giant money laundering operation. Um, he was, you know, he was giving money to Ukraine. And, oh, if money over there is so desperate to feed people and defend, why are you giving it to FTX? You know, um, you know, he pled not guilty and you're not going to see a trial because if they ever did a trial, then all the money laundering is going to come out. Um, so the Democrats are feeding all this money to Ukraine and then they feed it back to FTX. FTX was then the second largest donator to all the, the Democratic campaigns. Uh, Ukraine could not donate to a, a U.S. election directly. So they funneled it back through FTX. That's what the whole thing's about. I'm, I'm curious as to why they're even trying to follow any rules or laws that there's, there doesn't seem to be any rules. So why couldn't Ukraine give directly to them at this point? Like who would stop them from doing it? That's why I, I'm, I'm, right now I'm at this point where I'm like, what's the point of having a rule of law if no one's going to follow it? Well, why even have these things and say things are unconstitutional if no one's going to follow the Constitution? Because why not just have full-fledged <laughs> art tyranny? Because I feel like that's probably where we it's are right just, now. Where it's, all it is is just you know, trying to make it look you know, acceptable. That, that's yeah. it. It's image. Uh, that's all. I mean, you get to go down to Washington. They don't, there's nothing that takes place that's, that's really legal. Um, you know, I was back in the nineties asked to, to develop a, a system to uh, take social security private. Um, I spent a lot of time on this and I said, okay, fine. This is how we do it. Everybody puts in track records and we allocate money according to the best track records. And the Democrats wouldn't vote for it. And I said, you know, what's the problem here? Bluntly, they said, well, if we get back into power, we want to change the fund managers. I said, it's got nothing to do with who we voted for. I don't care if he didn't vote at all. We're basing the decision on their track record. No. Everything is like, what do I get out of it? Uh, and that's pretty much why I was really got disgusted and just didn't want to deal with Washington anymore. It was just an absolute joke. Uh, yeah. Couldn't couldn't blame you. It seems like it's very parasitic. 
and speaking of parasitic, I believe there was a founder, a co-founder of Home Depot. You, you talked about this a generation or the people called the leech class or people who, who like their parasites who just kind of feed upon other people. And they apparently they're in the majority. There's, there's only a minority of people that are really very productive members of society. At this point, where we are headed for, and you've talked a lot about, I love how you point out socialism and how awful it is. And we've interviewed a gentleman named Tom DiLorenzo, who wrote this fantastic book about why socialism fails. And you, you both nail it, where you're saying that people have no incentive to produce or to do things because they're going to get taxed, they're going to lose all of it. So at what point do you foresee we get to that Rubicon where people say, well, well the socialism is not going to work. We're going to have to break off. We're going to have to do our own thing. And then that leech class kind of collapses. Is there any point that Socrates foresees them kind of, I don't know, exiting, either exiting the gene pool or uh, coming back uh, to the workforce? Probably um, more around 20, uh, 28, I would say. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but we're in that process now. I say people moving uh, to Florida is saying, I'm sick and tired of paying the, these taxes. I mean, when I've sta saved in just state income taxes, leaving New Jersey, probably paid for my house in six years. Um, I mean, it, it's a huge difference. I mean, we had a, a conference in, in Hong Kong and I had to give 10% to New Jersey. For what? What did you do for me? You know, <laughs> other than give me tickets. That's about it. Um, we have one conference in Philadelphia and then you had to pay city income tax. So we had to pay the city income tax. I said, that's it. I'm not, not going to do this again. And then from then on, I get, you know, oh, you haven't paid your income tax. And I wrote a letter back. I will never be in your city ever again. <laughs> you know, uh, but this is the way it is. They don't look at it from our perspective. It's like we need money. OK, who else has got some and how can we get it? Uh, they don't look at the the ramifications of that i mean us going there holding a conference everybody comes in they're they're renting hotels uh they're spending money locally they don't look at that it's like oh well how much did he make we can get some of that that that's it that's all they they look at it, it's this is the real problem and that's why your economic model just continues to decline under socialism because uh, socialism empowers government. And the real problem I think that has emerged is that, uh, you know, a lot of these people say, oh, we want to return to a gold standard. They have no idea what that even means. Uh, to do something like that, you'd have to have balanced budgets. What does that imply? It means a politician can no longer run. Vote for me and I'll give you this. All right. They can't say that. Anymore. They don't know how to run under a, a government that with a, a balanced budget. It's all bribing the public. So you're talking about a, a substantial issue of having to actually change the very foundation of the entire government even to go back to some sort of a fixed exchange rate. Yeah, I I don't know if that'll, I wonder if that, I think it's probably will never happen. No, like it's happened. But I mean, when it comes to inflation, <laughs> one of our previous interviews that he's been mentioning that we're going to see a higher inflation by 2024, maybe potentially up to 25%. And because the U.S. is the world's reserve currency, I think maybe, and because a lot of dollars are outside the U.S., I wonder if the people in the U.S. will be as affected by it or impacted by it as people who don't live inside the U.S. And I'm wondering, as the way things are going, you're talking about Klaus Schwab and the reason why they're trying to, I guess, get rid of all freedoms because they can no longer keep this game going. At what point does this outstanding debt completely cease to be effective and cease to run the system as we once knew it? At what point, does, how much debt has to be accrued and how high do interest rates need to go before... There's a currency crisis, not only in Europe, but funnily speaking, across the world, where everyone's currency is no longer holding the same value it once had or can no longer have the purchasing power to acquire basic goods and services to the point where you have a disruption like we've never seen before. Well, that's what Schwab is pushing for, for the for the <clears throat> when he says, 
you know, you own nothing and be happy. Well, he's trying to make it sound they're doing this for you. But <laughs> in effect, they're really talking about uh, defaulting on government debt. But if they default on government debt, there goes all the pension funds. Uh, so that's where they come in out with the uh, guaranteed basic income. <laughs> you know, um, but all of this is is we had this bond crisis in London, and people don't appreciate what that was really about. Since 2014, Europe went to negative interest rates. That meant basically you're looking at about eight years worth of bonds that institutions have bought that they have lost anywhere from 20 to 50% on. So suddenly they didn't want to buy the long term. That was the crisis in, in London. And then you had Janet Yellen come out and say, oh, well, maybe the Treasury should start buying in the long term and swapping it with the short term. Because as interest rates go up, you lose a tremendous amount of money on these bonds. So effectively, why would an institution buy a bond if the Fed's going to raise you know, interest rates 1% every month uh, or a half a percent? You, you're going to just lose constantly. Um, so effectively, you have a shortening of the yield curve to some degree, you have people wanting to get out of the long term and moving into short term. That increases the volatility. But this comes back to the debt question you're asking about. Mm. If they can no longer sell the long term debt, all right, then they can't fund the system of socialism continuing. You just had Goldman Sachs saying they're going to lay off three or four thousand people. It's basically the demand among uh, to to buy government bonds. And Goldman is a primary dealer. What that means is the government doesn't sell its bonds directly. To be a primary dealer, you get on the list And then you're allocated how much of that debt you must buy. All right. And then they have to resell it. So the primary dealers, the other part of what Yeltsin was, Yellen was talking about here, uh, also went over the head of most of the press. It was the fact that she was basically said uh, indirectly that the thirst for more and more debt because of Ukraine, et cetera, has exceeded the capability of the primary dealers to buy it. So if they, the primary dealers cannot afford to buy all this new debt coming out, then suddenly you have no bid. And then that, what happened? That starts the whole debt crisis. Uh, unfolding and which we're probably going to see more of it this year um is it going to be like a tsunami wave with it because some people have um i know peter schiff's always been advocating and saying that we're probably going to see that the dollar be almost completely worthless and no you're one of the few people that said it's never going to be completely worthless and there's all these kind of forces that are pulling on it but when you see a, a true genuine debt crisis how like what's the best and worst case scenarios for that to happen well, people like like him, they, they're all that analysis is so wrong. It's crazy. I mean, it, it's it's traditional and only looking at domestic issues. So you have all these people. Oh, the Fed's going to raise rates, and what is you know the the latest unemployment number? This is all real. It's irrelevant. All right, <clears throat> what made the United States? the financial capital of the world. It was World War I and II. We were financially bankrupt. J.P. Morgan had to bail us out with a $100 million gold loan in 1896. Britain was the financial capital. You had World War I, World War II. By the time that was over, they blew each other up so much, the U.S. ended up with 76% of the world gold reserves. That's why there was the Roaring Twenties. All the money came over here. All right. And 
It didn't want to go back right away. So the first G4 where they were trying to manipulate the capital flows because Europe was in, in crisis was 1927. So the whole boom for 1929 and everything was all simply because all the money came here. So it's an international issue. And once again, now you have Ukraine uh, and this push for World War III is completely insane. All right. Sweden just the other day announced it's, it's, you know, implementing a draft. All right. Belarus is implementing a draft. Uh, Poland is now set to, to recreate an army up to 250,000. Um, they are all arming up to the teeth. All right. And this has been a proxy war against Russia from the beginning. Uh, and the, you say Bolsonaro, Trump, uh, Putin and Jing, they were all against this climate change and all had to be removed to get this great reset agenda going. All right. So they took out Trump. And one of the things that that told me it was clearly uh, pre-planned was that the CIA went to him and said, look, uh, we need more time to release the F, you know, the the. JFK files. Uh, so we, we need to postpone until after the election. Trump gave it to him. Okay. Then after the election, Biden says, yeah, okay, fine. You don't have to come out with that stuff. Uh, they knew he wasn't going to win. Hmm. Um, and the same thing with Bolsonaro. I mean, they had to remove him. Uh, I posted a, a video uh, on our blog of him at the 2019 uh, Davos meeting. And he's saying, we've got to be careful what we say. These people are basically all idiots. Uh, They had to get rid of him. All right. Putin, they're going after him. Why? Because uh, Russia, 50% of its GDP is all energy. They, they blew up the, the pipeline. It's, they want, this is part of this global agenda for climate change to, to, and they really want to destroy Russia. That's what this is all about. Um, and that's why they're funding uh, Ukraine. I mean, the, the amount of money they have given Ukraine is astronomical. People don't realize it. It's, it's crazy. twice the annual military budget of Germany, twice. Jeez. And it's nearly 50% of the of the budget of China. It's 50% more than what Russia spends. That's how much money we have given to Ukraine. It's it's unbelievable. It's insane. And he shows up in a in a sweater and he's making appearances at the Golden Globe saying, oh, I don't want to World War Three. Well, how many peace negotiations have yet? No, no peace negotiations. No, he's been told not no. to negotiate. But you know, there's one thing I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around, Martin, is, OK, you have the military industrial complex and you've got these climate change activists and you've got this neocon. So I was going through my head and thinking, OK, well, if you you're the military industrial complex, you need to have these machines that run on oil and fossil fuels. So isn't that a conflict of interest with the people who for climate change? And when, when I'm looking at some of this oh, stuff, yeah. the supposed green energy, apparently solar panels are very bad for the environment. In order for to get these batteries charged, you need to have coal to create the energy in order to charge these batteries. So uh, I'm looking at this. There's, there's so many things that are up in the air. Like, how can you be for... The climate change, I mean, for the environment, knowing that some of these uh, things that are created, like the uh, solar panels, are bad for the environment. And at the same time, how can you be in the military industrial complex knowing that all these war machines run on fossil fuels? Aren't those two uh, philosophies completely opposed to each other? Do they Are they not similar? In, are they not opposing interests? Yeah. And look, um, my sources tell me the military has been warning, you know, um, Biden and is against you know, going into into war. Every model uh, I have I have seen on U.S. versus China, we lose. We have not not one computer model shows us winning. Period. Um, yet you have Biden standing up. Oh, we'll boots on the ground. We'll defend uh, Taiwan. Um, 
he's out there trying to create uh, NATO in Asia. Not going to work. All right. It's just not going to work. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> so the military is not fully on board with this World War Three. It seems to be the climate change and the neocons. Um, I forget that one, you know, congressman's name. It starts with a K. He came out and actually said that we could defeat uh, Russia in three days. I mean, he's <laughs> completely insane. Yeah. Completely insane. Yeah. Um, it's like we can send nukes, but you can't. I mean, they have <clears throat> uh, hypersonic missiles. There is no defense against that. Period. I read your uh, I mean, read your article about that. You're saying that there are some bad places to be, and all the places that you list that are most prone to a nuclear attack, it's insane. I mean, there were like five or six places that you you, you listed, and I'm just wondering: aren't are the neocons? Are they the military-industrial complex, or are they a group of people that have a certain extreme ideology that the military-industrial complex kind of utilizes to further their needs and goals? Or they um, <clears throat> I would say that they use them. Uh, to get money over the years. But um, I mean, I've looked at, I mean, even the the newspaper Politico did a review of John McCain and it didn't matter who was the head of Russia. He always said the same thing. Uh, I mean, I know because uh, since I was in the middle of all that stuff to, back then, anyhow, Putin is by no means a communist. He had no intentions of ever erecting uh, the USSR. Uh, <clears throat> Yeltsin was being attacked by uh, <clears throat> the old communists who did want to, to uh, resurrect USSR, led primarily by Primakov. Uh, and, um, and on the other side, there were basically the uh, oligarchs who wanted to, you know, take over the country led by Barostovsky and sell it to the highest bidder. Um, <clears throat> so Yeltsin was caught between these two and he turned to Putin because he was the only one who wasn't even a member of a party. <laughs> and uh, his last words to him was protect Russia. Now he's had, you know, basically 30 years if he wanted to resurrect USSR, don't you think he would have done it before now? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is all just propaganda. Uh, and it, it it's unfortunate because they <clears throat> manipulate people to make it think that he's the devil. And somehow, if you get rid of Putin, everything will be, you know, wiped clean. And, and that's absurd. Uh, it's You get rid of Putin and the hardliners are going to come back in and they're going to get control. Um, already, they're the ones that are basically threatening nuclear war and everything else. You know, Putin's been the one saying, no, we don't need to go there. Thank you for saying that, because to the average American, they're just worried about what's going on with iTunes and whether or not they're going to, you know, Internet speed is a little fast. So <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. Martin, I know we have I only have a limited time. So I was wondering if I could um, focus on like a couple of just two more quick questions. One of them, this may probably sound a little bit out of left field, but I think it's important. Dr. Stephen Greer is a trauma surgeon. He's also known as the founder of the modern day UFO disclosure movement, um, bringing to the public's attention uh, everything that's going on, what we know. In 2001, he had a former group of people that had been working on these crafts and he tried to do disclosure. And according to him, He's also, by the way, briefed three sitting U.S. presidents about what we know about these programs. According to him, the elites have technologies that could fundamentally change the world. Uh, they already have access to infinite energy. Uh, we've already been able to figure out how to uh, create machines that hover and that uh, defy gravity. So I'm curious to know, do Socrates ever see, do you see anything that Socrates is predicting where we'll have a fundamental shift in um, where humanity experiences uh, a disclosure, where we have access to these technologies, or humanity has an era of beautiful peace, where the humanity kind of comes together. And I'm wondering if you would tie to something like this, because Dr. Greer, he's not one of those people out there that um, that talks about UFOs, you know, like you know that some people do, saying where they are. He doesn't really focus on that. He focuses more about uh, these technologies that we have that could that could really help humanity and bring the world to a greater state of peace. But he says. The industrialists don't want that to happen. He says they always want to keep the world 
under their thumb by making infinite by energy seem as a finite resource and not infinite. So I'm curious if uh, Socrates has ever come across anything like that, if Socrates has any kind of predictions where we have a, a, a golden era. Well, I would say that comes after 2032. Uh, okay. Probably <clears throat> you're looking at uh, from 2044 onward. Uh, and yes, <clears throat> um, I mean, I had owned a brokerage house in, in Tokyo and there was a guy that came in and <clears throat> He had a scooter that that worked on magnetism. He says, you plug it in one time and that's it. And he says, here, keep it for a week. Try it. <clears throat> and I asked him, why are you coming to me um, to try and mark, you know, <clears throat> do something with this? And I said, why don't you go to Toyota, et cetera? And he said he went to all the major, you know, developers, car developers. They all wanted to buy it. But nobody wanted to put it into use. They wanted to just put it on the shelf. Um, so, I mean, there are technologies. I mean, basically from physics class, I mean, we either create energy from the magnetism force or from the electrical force. We chose electric. Um, <clears throat> there is an opposite side. Uh, and eventually, you know, that you know, will come, but probably after 2032. Um, I mean, technical advances are very important. <clears throat> I mean, our own company, uh, <clears throat> people have often asked me, how did you ever grow to become the biggest in the world? I said, very simple. I said, in, in the 80s, our reports used to go out by telex. And they were like $75 just to get one in every three a day per market. All right. So only the biggest institutions and central banks could even afford it. Then facts came. So then our client base began to <clears throat> expand. Then basically the internet and email came. I mean, so it was those advances that expanded our company. So we went from telexes to, to faxes and then from faxes to emails. So uh, all of this is very important because that's how society progresses. You know, every invention uh, is the next wave, basically. Um, Schumpeter called it the wave of innovation. Uh, so once the combustion engine was invented, suddenly... Uh, we had 40% of the workforce was, were farmers. Uh, eventually that dropped to 3%. All right. If we didn't have the combustion engine that these climate change people hate so much, we wouldn't have the food production to even you know, provide everything for everybody. Uh, and that changed our lifestyles. And you could do something rather than growing tomatoes and, and picking them to survive for the for next week. Um, so, I mean, technology advancing is part of the cycle. Um, so I think the energy thing will shift, but that's probably after 2032. Got it. And the uh, final question I have for you, Martin, is in addition to going to your blog on a regular basis, I love going through some of your older articles, especially when you're talking about history, because I love how you look for a pattern that has happened in the past or Garner was happening in the future. And you're one of the few people I know that really makes it a point to immerse yourself in the study of historic patterns and see what's going on today. Because I love how you, you point out to an event that's happening. You say, okay, well, this is how things emerge. And this is where I see a correlation. So for people out there that want to stand with you, it's uh, a two-part question. One, what can they do to help your efforts and to get your message out? And two, uh, what are some of the, your personal goals for yourself for this coming year? Well, 23 is going to be a wild year to, be, <laughs> to begin with. Um, um, probably actually have a little free time. And I'm not sure I'm going to have it this year. But um, it, what you have to understand about history, it, it's, you know, sometimes people think about it, uh, you know, this battle and how many people died and Alexander did this. That's not the, the, the real crux of, of the issue. The, the real thing is that <clears throat> human nature never changes. 
So you can read about the debt crisis in, uh, in Athens and see they responded the same way. Um, there was a financial crisis in 33 AD uh, and you had you know, shortages of money. So you had tokens being made by the private sector to facilitate things. There was a big earthquake in, in, uh, in Turkey and Emperor you know, Tiberius issued coins and they set on it for the relief of, of, of Asia. Uh, so it, it's, you always see the same things. It, it's, they respond the same way. Um, you know, quantitative easing is not anything that's new. It's been done many, many times. Tiberius, for example, during the financial crisis, he, he provided loans without any interest at all zero to try and you know stimulate the economy so these things have been done many many times it, it, there's nothing really new um i would say our biggest mistake is you have these committees they go oh let's try this yes sir nobody ever asked the question has this been attempted before did it work did it not work i mean i can't think of any situation that has not appeared before you know you have uh nixon when we brenton woods fell he put in wage and price controls well guess what the first wage and price controls go back to babylonian tablets hammurabi just you know basically putting out uh, what a silver will buy what the price of everything is diocletian in 284 b you know ad put in Wage and price controls. <laughs> um, these things have been done so many times. It, it's not unusual. Um, just, you know, look at history and say, has anybody ever done this before? And what happens? Simple as that. All right. Appreciate your response. Mr. Martin Armstrong, legendary trans forecaster, author, and uh, incredible astute historian and person who has a unique perspective on human nature. Thank you so much for being with us once again and for sharing your wisdom, your time, and your energy, and your insight. Learn more about Martin by going to his website at armstrongeconomics.com. Highly recommend reading his blog. Highly recommend also going through some of his previous entries and looking at some of your previous predictions because a lot of your predictions that you've mentioned over the years have come true. I always use that as a point of reference when I'm about to do an interview, and it's incredible how accurate these predictions are. So, Martin, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, you. it's 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 always basically history in the computer. It's not my personal opinions. <laughs> thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our unbelievable guest, and special thanks as always to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Constance Dallas, and our social producer Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. And until the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take care and thank you so much for listening.